Hi everyone, you are listening to the Brown History Podcast. My name is Essen and this is episode 14. On today's episode, our guest is Audrey Trusky. She is a historian, she got her PhD from Columbia University, and she is the author of a book called Aurangzeb, The Life and Legacy of India's Most Controversial King. The key word here is controversial, that's just a nice way of saying the most hated king in South Asian history, and we're going to talk a lot about that. If you're enjoying the Brown History Podcast and you're enjoying the page and you want to help and support, just check out brownhistorypodcast.com. Thank you so much. It goes a long way and it means a lot. Let's get this started. Here we go. Yeah, so thanks for asking me. I, I appreciate the interest. Uh, yeah, so um, I guess we can get started. It's already, it's already been recorded. It's already recording. Um, okay. <laughs> just a heads up. Um, I read your book. And I was expecting something really dry and complicated, but it was actually a really fun read. I like highly recommend it. I didn't know anything about Mughal history much except what I've seen on TV and bits and pieces here and there. So when I read it, it was really cool to understand how that world worked. And it was really cool to kind of see, because usually they're painted either good or bad, Mm -hmm. the hero or the villain, very good looking or very ugly. But in this case, you get like the real man behind it. And first question I'm going to ask you is, the title of the book is The Life and Legacy of India's Most Controversial King. And the key word here is controversial. Why is he so controversial? You know, so first off, that, that subtitle, um, th- that was at the request of my Western publisher. Okay. I, I originally subtitled the book, uh, The Man in the Myth. So Aurangzeb, The Man in the Myth. And that's how we published it in both India and Pakistan. Uh, but my, my Western publisher wisely, I think, said, uh, you know, no one's going to know who like Aurangzeb is. So you need to like define this guy in the subtitle. Anyway, so, so that's why we came up with the alternative subtitle. But yeah, you know, he, and he is really controversial. And I think yes. that's sort of, if you're, gonna, if you're gonna read and learn about him, especially if you go in knowing nothing, you know, that's the, one of the first things you need to know is that this guy is a modern political football. Um, and, you know, I, in terms of why he is so controversial, there's a lot of answers to that question. There, there's a colonial era legacy there of sort of demonizing India's Muslim kings um, that, that's then sort of taken over by Hindutva ideologues and Hindu nationalists today. There's a mo- much more modern storyline as well of sort of growing Islamophobia in India that plays on growing Islamophobia in the wider world. Um, and then, of course, there, there's kind of the bare political fact that Aurangzeb was very powerful. He was very successful in the, sort of the political terms of his day. And those terms dictated pretty incredible use of state violence. That doesn't sit well with modern people. And I, I totally get that. I'm a modern person as into democracy and human rights and all this sort of stuff as, as everyone else. Mm-hmm. Um, those terms are simply not applicable to, to judge Aurangzeb. It doesn't help us understand him in historical terms any better. You mean you should kind of analyze him from that era, I guess, how things were back then. Correct. And, you know, this, I mean, this is sort of historical method 101. We judge historical figures on their own terms, which is not to say we don't judge them at all. Or, you know, if you want to judge, you want to judge harshly, that's fine. But you need to use the terms of their day. Um, you know, I've said it before, and I'll say it again, that if you, if you want to look back at the past through the eyes of the present and know whether you like any pre-modern Indian kings, you can just stop at pre-modern. 
like you don't need to know anything else you don't need to know that they're indian or like when they are or what religion like you like a modern person with modern values is going to harshly condemn any pre-modern ruler across the board it was a radically different world and you know, I'm not, obviously, historians, we don't, we don't apologize for the past, we don't justify it, but we do try to make sense of it and to understand it. And a, a huge degree of that involves seeing it from the eyes of the people who lived through it. I posted about Aurangzeb uh, a while ago, and I got a lot of DMs hating on me because apparently he was a hardcore Muslim who hated anybody that wasn't non-Muslim, that converted people from Hinduism to Islam by force, broke down Hindu temples, you know, this and that. How much did religion play in his political campaigning and his uh, ruling? Mm. It's a great question. So let me start by saying this, the man that you just described, that's the myth, right? That's, that's the myth. Or, that's of the myth. Um, and he, and he, Orgs of the Myth is, is, is terrible and very powerful today. Um, you know, but in turn, you look back at the past, how much did religion influence his rule? There is scholarly debate on that question, um, which is basically like saying the sky is blue, like scholars debate literally everything. It's kind of what we do. Um, but there are different scholarly opinions. Some scholars have thought religion was more important. It's my general take on this. I, I, I say a couple of things in the book and I, and I stand by all of this today. I mean, I think that, I think in a sense, his Aurangzeb's sort of political experiences influenced his personal religious life more than the other way around. Right? People always assume that his interior religious life made him into some kind of, of particular ruler. Um, but I actually think that there's some evidence that it worked the other way. Right, and that his political experiences seem to cause him to wrestle with some very serious religious questions. You know, and I have this hedging language, right? Seems to, appears to, and that's because you can't get inside the head of a dead guy. I mean, you can't get inside the head of a living person, arguably, but certainly not one that's been dead for over right. 300 years. So there's some evidence, but obviously hardly conclusive. Another thing that I think is important to recognize is that Aurangzeb was a Muslim. Yeah. But was he a hardcore Orthodox Muslim? Well, that really depends on how you define hardcore and Orthodox, right? Mm -hmm. I can tell you that like this like sort of modern day Wahhabi Islam wouldn't want to touch a guy like Aurangzeb with a 10 foot pole. Like they would think he's a total heathen. You know, he was a mystic. He was a Sufi through and through. I mean, the guy is still buried at a Chishti shrine. Like not just the Sufi shrine, but like the most Indian of the Sufis, right? Like the Chishtis. And that, that was by his own will. He had relations with a range of, of both Chishti leaders and uh, other, other Sufi orders throughout his life. His Islam was talismanic. He believed in charms or at least publicly claimed to believe in sort of the use of charms and things like this. Um, all of this stuff that no, I think hardly any modern person would define as quote orthodox Islam. So he was a Muslim, but a Muslim of sort of his time and place, right? 17th century India. Um, the last thing that I'll say about Aurangzeb's religion was that it never stood in the way of political power for him. He was a king, he was an emperor, first and foremost. And there are several times in his life where his religious ideas and his sort of thirst for raw political power do conflict he chooses power every single time, 
it's, it's an issue on which he has remarkable consistency. Um, and he goes against some pretty powerful people in the course of doing that. Um, you know, people imagine today that Aurangzeb was sort of always in bed with the ulama, and sometimes he was, um, but like sometimes he, he, he conflicted with the ulama as well. Uh, and he would send people away. I mean, he fired it when one of his one of the the uh, the chief Qazi of the Mughal Empire for disagreeing with Aurangzeb's um, political ideas at, at a certain point during the Deccan Wars. So he was an emperor first and foremost. Muslim, yes, sometimes publicly what, use that religion, but always an emperor. What about his views on Hinduism? Were they you know was he against them or did it matter or not? Because the all the accusations I get. All the comments I get is he destroyed thousands and thousands of temples and he forced converted people. Mm. So on a pure factual level, Aurangzeb Alamgir did not destroy thousands of temples. Oh, yeah. We have evidence for right around a dozen confirmed temple destructions during his reign. Now that's a low end number. That's what we can sort of hard confirm. Okay, mm -hmm. so the number can go up and not down. Liberally, let's say it's twice, let's say it's three times that number, right? right? We're talking about well under 50 temple destructions in the course of his reign. So th this was fairly limited. Um, it was also very geographically limited as well. Uh, it's, it's very clear Aurangzeb followed, you know, 500 years of Indo-Muslim tradition in using temple destructions as a tool of state punishment, right? They, they were used as, as a political tool. And I know that's very hard for modern people to accept because for us, religion and places of worship are sacrosanct. Yeah. That's not how it worked in early modernity. Temples were sites of political power as well as sites of religious oh, practice. Okay. And that, like that, it's just a fact about the past, right? It, it, is, it is what it is. Um, in terms of conversion, so that's another sort of hard fact point. Aurangzeb did not lead any massive state conversion program. He wanted to conquer India and Indians. He didn't want to convert them. Mm. Um, like all Muslim kings before him, in India, and I, I, as far as I know, elsewhere, he didn't seem to mind genuine conversions, right? That was true of Akbar, too. You know, people convert to Islam, totally fine, you know, welcome, not a problem. Um, but Aurangzeb did, actually, there are, there are a couple occasions where he actually opposes conversions that would have gotten people out of state punishments. So, again, when it comes to exercising the power of the state versus the sort of, you know, evangelical tendencies of Islamic thought and practice, he chose the state. Um, to get to you know, your sort of larger question, how did Aurangzeb feel about Hindus? So there's not a lot of evidence that he thought about Hindus as a cohesive community. Okay. Okay. I mean, Hindu was a word at the time. It, it was, it's a Persian and Arabic origin word. Um, it, most Hindu communities did not refer to themselves as such, particularly frequently, if ever, in the 17th century, right? The self-application of that term in a widespread sense came, came a bit later, 18th, 19th century. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, whether it was because of the British, that, that gets into a whole can of worms. Oh, yeah. um, but I mean, Hindu identity was hardly cohesive in this period, either from you know, various internal, we would now say, anachronistically Hindu perspectives, or from, from an outside perspective like Aurangzeb's. Yeah. So for Aurangzeb, it really depended like who you were, um, and not so much whether you were Hindu or not, but what your relationship to the state was. Okay. So if you're a Rajput, and you want to support the Mughal state, Aurangzeb was very favorable towards you. Right? Like, th th that's not a problem. You're a Maratha who's been giving him a hard time, and suddenly you want to submit to Mughal state authority, Aurangzeb says, welcome. 
right? I mean, unless you're, you know, like, you know, Shambhuji or something, and then, then he beheads you. But, um, you know, you know, if you're a Rajput or Maratha and you want to fight against the Mughals, yeah, like you, you better fight and win. Otherwise, you're going to end up dead. Um, you know, Aurangzeb, he was neither, how would I put this? He was neither more harsh, nor was he more lenient or sort of, I don't know, more compassionate towards sort of everyday Hindus, right? You know, so often we talk about Mughal history, we're always talking about the elites, right? The people at the court, but for like everyday people on the ground, you know, so for example, in the Deccan Wars, Aurangzeb, as well as everyone he fought against, um, you know, various Indo-Muslim states in the Deccan, um, as well as, you know, Hindu rulers, we would now say, everyone used scorched earth as a tactic, right? So you burn all the fields around so that no one has grain to eat. This had effects, obviously, on your opponent's armies. It also had widespread effects throughout society, right? right? A lot of people starved to death. Aurangzeb did not scorch the earth more when there were more Hindus around, nor did he scorch it less, right? You know, he, he was sort of equal in, in his approach. And I think really, he, in terms of understanding most actions undertaken by Aurangzeb Alamgir, it's not super helpful to think in terms of religion because he didn't. He didn't say, I'm going to treat Hindus this way and Muslims this way. He said, I'm going to treat people around, you know, 50 kilometers around Bijapur this way because Bijapur is giving me a hard time, okay. right? I'm going to treat people loyal to me this way because they're good. And people disloyal to me, I'm going to treat this way because they are bad. Um, you know, what else? What else do I want to say this? There are exceptions. So good exception. All right. This exception is, is the Jizya tax. Right? That's, that's a favorite the, the one. The what attacks? The Jizya. Okay. Um, and obviously, jizya tax is repetitive, but anyways, that's how we do it in English. Um, but okay, so for the for the jizya, so so Aurangzeb re, he brings back the jizya, which right. the, which Mughal kings had had in abatement for about a hundred years. Akbar had rescinded the jizya. The jizya is, how, is what we call a discriminatory tax, right? It taxes people of some religions and not people of others. Now the jizya as exercised in, in Aurangzeb's India was not, it was not sort of all Hindus paid and no Muslims paid. There were exceptions. Uh, some Brahmin communities didn't have to pay, Rajputs didn't have to pay, so on and so forth. But overwhelmingly, it was of course still a, a discriminatory tax. And so the question is, why? Why do it? Yeah. When Aurangzeb brought back the jizya in 1679, he faced huge opposition. Like the Rajputs were upset, presumably the Marathas were also upset. Our, our information on that is a little bit less clear. We, we have this one harshly worded letter. We don't know exactly who wrote it. Um, many people within his own family, his own sister Jahanara was upset about, about the Jizya tax. And so just, one, just, to, just to get better context, it's a tax that he put on everybody pretty much, except for certain people. And people sorry, it's, it's a tax that, that was overwhelmingly on Hindus and not on Muslims. Okay. Muslims right. do not pay the Jizya. Okay, so it's a tax. It's a non-Muslim tax, basically. Exactly. Which and is, there and there were exceptions. There were some non-Muslim groups who didn't have to pay, but overwhelmingly, you had to pay. Sorry. Which is the the elite caste didn't have to pay. More or less. That's okay. a, that's a fair characterization. But overwhelmingly, you know, people we would now describe as Hindu had to pay this tax. Okay. Right? So it, it's an openly discriminatory tax and it's described sure. as such in scholarly literature. Um, and so why do it? It's, it was unpopular. He, and like, not only unpopular among the people, I mean, the guy's an emperor, he's not elected. Like, what does he really care what the people think? But his own elites around him didn't want him to do it. So why do it? Why? 
Many scholars think it was anti-Hindu sentiment. That's, that's a theory that's been aired for a long time. And I didn't find evidence of it. And I, I looked far and wide. And, you know, honestly, I'm still a little puzzled on the jizya. Um, and there, you know, there are several points in, in my Aurangzeb book where I signal that I'm not entirely certain, right? And that's, that's, that's by the way, one of the, uh, the marks of a good historian. Anyone who tells you they have it all figured out, you should never listen to, okay? Right. Um, historians work in degrees of certainty. So my degree of certainty is not so high on the jizya, but I think essentially he was placating the ulama the learned elite of Islam that Aurangzeb, along with all Mughal kings before him, had had a series of run-ins with, right? So the, you know, sort of conflict and tension between Mughal ruling elites and the ulama had been going on for generations before Aurangzeb. And it didn't go away with him. If anything, it intensified because Aurangzeb expanded the Mughal empire. And so, 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 so he got consolidated power. Yeah, so the ulama, they wanted the jizya tax because the jizya is collected by a special class of tax collectors, not like the normal tax collectors. And that special class is drawn from the ulama, right? So this is a way to employ them. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, that's sort of my reading, which is much more, sorry, it's just to, to sum up, essentially, I think that he brought back the jizya tax for a mundane bureaucratic reason. He needed to employ a bunch of people that were otherwise bothering him about a whole range of issues. That is an explanation, you know, it's not sexy. It's not like, no one's going to get excited about this. It's like, really? He just wanted to employ a bunch of like grouchy guys, you know? But like, you know, within history, we're, we're honestly trying to figure it out, right? Not, right. not always creates the, uh, the you know, most sort of glorious storyline. Well, he hired a lot, of, a lot of Hindus in his team, right? Like he would hire, he would, the, the, the hiring rate of Hindus increased a lot more when he was on when he was on the throne right absolutely yeah so so Aurangzeb employed 50 percent more hindus in as members of his nobility as compared to his father his grandfather and his great great his great grandfather akbar yeah. um and the and Aurangzeb did that i mean this wasn't some like pro-hindu i love the rajputs kind of policy um right this was not you know some like nice thing that he did uh he did it because in his expansion of the mughal empire which was almost entirely southward he was trying to integrate a lot of marathas right into the imperial fold and so he needed to include them as members of the nobility um this was a move that did meet opposition largely from rajputs so this is another thing. If we always talk about Hindus as a monolithic category, you can't see that, right? Why would Rajputs oppose Marathas being integrated into the nobility? They're both Hindu. But actually, that's not quite the way that many 17th and early 18th century Rajputs and Marathas felt. Many of them saw themselves as members of two quite different sorts of, of classes, especially on the Rajput side. Is, is Rajput a, a caste or is it a dynasty or is it a... Um... A cultural reference? That's a good question. Um, so, I mean, the Rajputs, as I, I think that honestly depends sort of when and who and why you're asking. As I use Rajputs, it, it, is, it is both a sort of caste class sort of category, um, but specifically of, of a sort of a certain kind of political rulers in and around Rajasthan. Okay. Okay. That goes with Marathi for their own region and different dynasties have their own different things and religion doesn't really big play play a big role when kind of identifying these groups 
I don't know if I go so far as to say religion doesn't play a big role, but not necessarily the the key role. Um, so, you know, many, many Marathas, uh, at least some Maratha lineages, uh, they wanted to claim Rajput status because, I mean, that was like an illustrious thing if you were a Rajput. Um, many of the Rajputs did not feel that that was a legitimate claim on the part of Marathas. So okay. that, that was a subject of contention. Um, I, I found that guy, I found uh, Oran Zeb to have kind of a Muslim guilt going on in his life throughout, uh, and I guess he was just fighting it. Is that is that correct to say? You're thinking of kind of like the poetry at the end of his life where he's like, I'm failed, yes. I'm going to hell, that sort of stuff? Yeah. Yeah. You know, so I've had a lot of debates on this. Um, part of it is that's kind of how you were supposed to talk as like an elite learned Muslim writing in, in Persian at this period. Like you're supposed to express that kind of guilt at the end of your life. Wow. Um, so some, some of it is convention, but I don't know. I feel, I, I still, I think that there's something more. I think he sort of goes a little further than he had to. Um, you know, again, I can't, I can't get inside his head. I don't know what was on, you know, on his heart at the end of his life, but he does seem to have wrestled with this, you know, mm. this idea of failure in his later years, you know, sort of according to, to religious ideas. Um, one sort of interesting thing for me that, that comes up a bit earlier in his life is that he becomes a Hafez. He memorizes the Quran. And he does that after he ascends the throne. And that's what's interesting to me, right? Because after he became the Mughal emperor, like, you know, time was a little precious. You know, he had like kind of a busy agenda, like to, to memorize the entire Quran at that point. I feel there had to be some catalyst for that, right? So there had to be some, something driving his sort of him sort of in his, his personal religious life. Otherwise, why do it? That was not expected of a Mughal king. So. Um. One surprising thing when I was reading the book of the way the world, the Mughal kingdom worked was that the oldest son doesn't get to be king. It's fought between all the brothers. I thought that was, you know, something really, really crazy and intense. And, and uh, can you elaborate on that? Because I never knew that before. Sure. So I think, you know, in, in modern times, because of the practices of many European monarchies, yes. um, we're, we're so used to primogenitor, right? Primogenitor is a fancy word. It just means the oldest son ascends the throne. King of Thrones. Right, exactly. Um, but that's that's not how it worked in in the in the Mughal Empire. Um, and, and the Mughals were taking sort of taking from Mongol and Timurid customs, right? They're sort of dual heritages on on this. So the Mughals don't come up with this idea that that all male sons have an equal claim to the to a, the throne. Um, they do narrow it a bit, right? Very early on, there is an idea that not only do all sons have a claim, but all male family members, like cousins, nephews, like everyone has a claim. Um, so th that gets real messy. So, you know, by, by Akbar's generation, they narrowed it to sons, but not further than that. Um, in an, at an earlier point in time, scholars, especially in the British colonial period, they presented this as a negative aspect of the Mughals, right? They're bloodthirsty. It was a bloodbath every time. They're uncivilized, yeah. right? You know, it, in comparison, of course, to European monarch monarchical uh -huh. uh, practices. Since then, I think scholars have sort of come round um, to, to a view argued most, most sort of forcefully and elo eloquently by Munis Faruqi, who's a historian uh, at Berkeley in the United States. And he's argued that Mughal princely sort of succession struggles were actually good. They were good for the Mughal state. They sort of, they, 
they incentivized princes to sort of go out and, and make friends with new groups in the Mughal Empire and then sort of integrate them into the Mughal state. I think a key thing to know here is that you know, the Mughal succession struggles themselves, especially with, with Aurangzeb's succession struggle, they could get very bloody, right? So a lot of people die, big, glorious battles. Right. At the end, when one guy is left standing, okay, he does not, generally speaking, punish most of his brother's supporters, right? He'll kill his brothers, but their supporters all get integrated into the, into the sort of imperial fold. Right. They all get integrated into the Mughal Empire. And I think that that is sort of one way that that these succession struggles serve to enliven the Mughal state. Right. Everyone mobilizes. You fight for your man. But then at the end of the day, you do swear allegiance to the new king. And suddenly you have a lot more soldiers and loyalty. Right. Yeah. But they must have awkward family dinners. <laughs> Yeah, I think some dynamics never really recovered, um, you know, especially, I mean, you know, Aurangzeb, he, he overthrew his father somewhat unintentionally. He thought yeah, his father which, would which die. Was against the law at the time, right? It was. It was against Sharia, um, which Aurangzeb never really made his peace with that, as far as I can tell, right? I mean, his first major act as king was entirely un-Islamic by his definition and everyone else's at the time. Um, but, you know, I don't imagine that he and Shah, Shah Jahan had a lot of like, you know, heart-to-heart -heart conversations in the seven and a half more years that Shah Jahan lived. True. Um, so, from my understanding, every Mughal king kind of brings or kind of supports a certain, I don't know what to say, thing, disciple, you know, painting, um, poetry. In his case, in Aurangzeb's case, he brought a book or something on justice. Yeah, the Fatavoye Alamgiri. Yeah, so Mughal kings before him had patronized a whole bunch of different stuff. And Aurangzeb did patronize a bunch of different stuff. But, and I'm, I'm getting to the Fatavoye, but one thing that, that Aurangzeb did not patronize had, were sort of Persian texts that dealt with Hindu thought. All right, so no, no more, he didn't directly sponsor further translations of Sanskrit texts or explorations of Upanishadic philosophy or any of this other stuff that Mughal kings have been doing for a long time before him. And I think that that is because of Dara Shikoh, right? His brother. His, his brother, okay, yeah. Right, the eldest, he had the eldest son who was Shah Jahan's favorite by a long yeah. shot. Like yeah. Shah Jahan very much played favorites. Um, Shah Jahan wanted Dara to sit on the throne and he came relatively close. I mean, you know, luckily, I guess for Aurangzeb, Dara Shikoh could not manage a battlefield to save his life. Um, literally, at the end of the day. So, um, but because Dara, Dara had been so heavily into to Hindu stuff. You know, he had sponsored and been personally involved with all of these projects that looked at the Upanishads, the Vedas, other sorts of Hindu texts, um, and wrote some of, some of these were translations of these texts into Persian. Sometimes people wrote about the text in Persian, but this was a sort of defining feature of Dara Shikoh's princeship, right? right? So when Aurangzeb beats him, when he beats the favorite son and ascends the Mughal throne, despite everything Shah Jahan had done to, to favor Dara's chances, I think that one early thing that Aurangzeb had to do was he had to distinguish himself from his brother, right? 
Aurangzeb was very much a Mughal king. He does not break with most major aspects of Mughal kingship. But I think that sort of not being super into Hindu stuff on a sort of literary patronage level, that was something that he could break. And so he does. He cuts off sort of all direct patronage links between the central Mughal court and any sort of Sanskrit intellectuals wandering around. So then... You fast, you fast forward, you know, 10, 15 years and, and Aurangzeb is sort of ready, you know, he's kind of established in this kingship, you know, dealt with a whole bunch of, you know, skirmishes and various stuff. Um, you know, there's a lot of challenges to authority when you're a new king. Shah Jahan's finally dead. So Aurangzeb's mm -hmm. like the legitimate king, according to Sharia. And he's ready to sort of, you know, sponsor some kind of major intellectual project, right? And what's it going to be? It's not going to be the Hindu stuff. It's not, it's not going to be a historical work. Um, you know, so many people hate Aurangzeb because I think he hated Hindus, but Aurangzeb's biggest sin, according to me, was that he fired his court historian after 10 years. Can't, I'm, I'm still mad. I'm still mad about it. Anyway, so the guy wasn't into history. So sad. Um, but history. I really wish we had court histories for the last 40 years. Anyways, so it's not going to be a history book, which was another major thing that Mughal yeah. kings had, had sponsored and sort of been into. So what else are you going to do? One thing that Aurangzeb was really into was, was the law, right? He was very interested in Sharia and interpretations of Islamic law and then this sort of thing. Um, India had, I mean, you know, the Mughal Empire ran all sorts of different courts. There was no standardized law book that they were using. And so he did this sort of compilation. Um, it also employed a ton of ulama. This okay. being before the jizya tax was brought back. So this was like the pre-jizya employ the ulama scheme. Um, it, took, it took them, I think, eight years to complete this massive compilation. Um, and it's still used today. So, you know. Where's it, it used? Um, as far as I, that's, that's a really good question. I, don't, I couldn't articulate that. I always, I always say it's used and I always say it. it was it a good book? Like, was it just the laws or was it very crazy or extreme? I mean, if you're thinking like UN Commission on Human Rights, I'm yes. sure it's like pretty appalling. But um, True. True. <laughs> um, if you're if you're thinking like 17th century, you know, like courts all over the land are deciding things in like crazy different ways and you want some sort of standardization. My yeah. understanding is that it was effective for those purposes. OK, OK. Um, um, you know, Aurangzeb was hot and heavy into justice, but his own definition of justice, not our definition of justice. Um, when he had kids. How did he deal with that? Because he took his father's, I mean, he didn't take his father's life, but he kind of locked him away. And then he kind of, you know, killed his brothers. Mm -hmm. Now he has kids. How does that come into play? Yeah, I, you know, I don't think he would have won Father of the Year awards. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, so yeah, or, I mean, I think honestly, I think Aurangzeb was kind of a lousy dad, even according to like Mughal definitions. Um, so keep in mind, Aurangzeb lived to be really old. He was in his late 80s. I mean, that's old even today, but like in his day, that's like really quite old. Um, so he had both, he had grown sons, some of whom predeceased him, um, but he, he also had grown grandsons. So there's like a lot of male members of the Mughal family yeah. to contend with by, by the time Aurangzeb is, you know, at the end of his his career and he dealt with them he was concerned about rebellion and one of his adult sons did rebel against him so th this was a good thing to be concerned with rebellion right. was a real threat but he responded to it by essentially declawing the mughal princes 
and their sons. Uh, he curtailed their ability to sort of run their own household, to accumulate their own followers, and to accumulate their own wealth. That it was, this was effective. It was an effective strategy to reduce further rebellions after the sort of initial one against him. Mm -hmm. But it also meant that when he finally died, no one was really equipped for, for the war of succession. You know, there was a war of succession and a guy did ascend the throne, but he was never able to really sort of entrench and solidify power in, in quite the same way. Was that, that the that beginning of the downfall of the Mughal Empire in a sense? That's a huge question. Okay. Um, huge question. When, when does the Mughal Empire start to crumble? I think things are not looking so good, even at the point of Aurangzeb's death. Okay. You know, the Mughal Empire, I mean, on the one hand, huge. it is the largest ever at, at yeah. the moment that he dies. So it's sort of like the, the pinnacle, but maybe a pinnacle, be, you know, you can only go down from. Okay. Okay. Because, okay. So then would you say, um, I don't know how to ask this question. Would you say he was like was he like according to i guess the mughal empire did he do a good job maintaining or yeah did he do a good job does that make sense was he you know yeah no it's it's i think it's a fair question yeah was he a good mughal king i mean uh, yeah from from their perspective like did mm -hmm. he get the job done that he that a king is meant to do at that time i would say that he was the dynasty's greatest success and their greatest failure both he he grew the Mughal Empire to its greatest extent. He conquered the Deccan. I mean, since his great grandfather Akbar, the Mughal kings had been thirsting and hungering after the Deccan. He succeeded where previous generations had failed. That sort of military success and ability to hold the empire together—that was a huge achievement, according to sort of you know internal Mughal metrics or however we want to want to word that. But I think that especially sort of stripping power away from the next generations. I, I think that that was a very bad move. Mm -hmm. There's also the question of sort of what the heck was he doing for the last 20 years, right? So, so Aurangzeb leaves Delhi in the 1670s, the late 1670s, and he goes south to the Deccan. And at first, everything's great. I mean, like, I, mean it was, I think it was pretty terrible to live through, but it was great from his perspective. Um, you know, he, he conquers Bijapur, he conquers Golconda, he's, and then after that, he starts sort of knocking down various Maratha-held forts. You know, he's, he's sort of kicking ass and taking names. Like, like, everything's great from a Mughal warfare perspective. And then he kind of loses steam. His troops have been down there for over a decade. A lot of them thought of Southern India as an entirely foreign place they want to go home. They want to go back to Northern India. And Aurangzeb, he, for the last 20 years of his life, he basically just sort of wanders around the Deccan and Southern India aimlessly. Um, he does sieges. He does one siege that lasts seven years, which is a sign of a massive failure. A, like a true siege cannot last seven years. Everyone would be dead long before that. So the siege was just ineffective. The siege lines obviously were breached repeatedly. Um, he takes forts and it will expend sort of extensive Mughal imperial resources taking a particular fort over many months. And then he walks away and the fort falls back into enemy hands within weeks. Right? Like this is not a successful military strategy. And he dies doing this. And he dies an old man wandering around in his camps in the Deccan. He never goes back home to northern India. He never sort of re, you know, sort of solidifies Mughal stature back up in the north. Um, and I, I think I think everyone thinks that, that that was a huge tactical error. 
and I think it remains one of the great unanswered mysteries about him and maybe always will be, is how, how did someone who won the War of Succession by demonstrating such military acumen, such great battle skills, how did, how did he fall down to, you know, sort of wandering toothlessly as this old ineffective emperor around the Deccan? Wow. I Googled you up and you get a lot of, um, there are a lot of people, there are some people out there who don't like you talking about this person. I guess that's true. Yeah, there, there are many people who would prefer that I never speak. Yeah, I mean, I saw a guy get up on the audience and like, you know, yell at you and, and say, who are you to, you know, question and talk about these things, you know, so you got, I guess that's where the controversial part comes in, in this whole book for you personally. Right. Well, you know, I wrote a book about a controversial king and in so doing, I somehow became controversial myself. Right. Yeah. So, um, now, I mean, in, in a sense, like I'm the controversy, anything I ever write or say again will be controversial because it's me. Um, which, which is unfortunate, you know, um, I w I would say, you know, uh, I mean, sometimes that, you know, the, the sort of haters out there, I mean, they imagine all these crazy things I must say in the classroom. Um, and I honestly, they would, they would be so disappointed. You know, my, my classes are like any other history class. Like my biggest struggle is keeping my students awake, especially on Zoom. That's like, you know, like a lot of effort goes into like trying to just keep everyone engaged. Um, it's, it's, it's really, I mean, I think it's exciting because I think all of Indian history is exciting, but mm, I think my students, you know, some are into it, but I think some are, you know, maybe yeah. have a different take. <laughs> you, have, you have a book that just came out, a new book. I do. The Language of History, Sanskrit Narratives of Indo-Muslim Rule. So it, it came out, I think, last week, uh, Insurrection Day, January yeah. 6th in the United States. Not planned, obviously. Um, and, and it'll come out, I think, next week in, in India. What's it about? Um, so basically, it's, it's sort of arguing for a new archive. Um, when we talk about the Mughals or any other Indo-Muslim kings, we're usually reading Persian sources, right? Mm -hmm. Persian was their language of rule. We're reading their histories, their farmans, their imperial orders, all of this. I look at a different archive. I look at Sanskrit texts, Sanskrit histories that discuss different Indo-Muslim rulers. Um, and, and I sort of ask a couple of questions. I want to know, I, you know, I'm in part a Sanskritist, so I care about Sanskrit intellectual history, and I want to know what written history looked like in Sanskrit. Didn't look like Western history, so what did it look like? Um, and I also want to know sort of what, what were the sort of shifting views of the Muslim other, right, over, you know, roughly 500 years. And as it turns out, um, the view is that didn't matter so much generally that they were Muslim, and by the end of things, they weren't other either. Wow. So, the, so that's so that's the new book. Um, you know, I, I had a great time writing it. Sanskrit is my first love in, in my sort of study of many things concerning the Indian past. So it was really great to get back to, to Sanskrit texts. That's a very complicated language. How did you end up learning Sanskrit? Why did you choose Sanskrit? It's a good question. So to which there's not a great answer. I mean, I was an undergraduate student at the University of Chicago. Mm -hmm. University of Chicago's informal model, motto is where fun comes to die. <laughs> it's a very bookish place, right? A lot, a lot of nerds. Um, <laughs> like I was totally, I mean, that's, that's totally me. So, you know, so I was undergraduate, I was 18 and I was going to learn ancient Greek. And then I was like, yo, you, everybody learned, sorry, year this would be this? 2000. Okay. And I was going to learn ancient Greek. And then, but then I was like, everybody learns ancient Greek, <laughs> which I mean, that perspective, like, obviously I'm a, I was in a bubble. Um, but then I took a class on, on Hindu mythology yeah. and I was fascinated. I was fascinated by the stories of, you know, 
all these gods and different ways of relating to people on earth. I'd never been exposed to anything like that. I'd never been off the North American continent at that point in my life. And so I was like, okay, this stuff's written in Sanskrit. I should learn that language. That'll be fun. You know, what else am I? I don't know. It seemed very logical, the University of Chicago. Once I started learning Sanskrit, I've always loved a good challenge. Uh, but I think more importantly, I learned sort of the vast depth of literature that there is available in Sanskrit and how understudied it is as compared to Western subjects. That was a sort of intoxicating mix for me, that there were so many texts that I could read and work on that had not been sort of written about to death. You know, I wouldn't have to be like 50 before I said something new about this stuff. Um, and things snowballed from there. Wow. I, you know, I learned Persian, some Hindi, some Urdu, so on and so forth. I'm, I got no more questions. Do you want to, do you want to talk about your book or do you want to talk about your first book? Do you want to add, um, any, add anything? What do I want to add? Take your time. Well, I don't know. <laughs> well, why were you interested in Aurangzeb? I just wanted to learn more about my roots. And then once I started that, there's so much going on that like, I got to, I just kept going on and on and on. And then now I just, whatever interesting book comes along, I just pick it up, read it. And I get to talk to the author about it, which is like the next level experience for anybody who likes to read. And that's sure, it. Sure. And I just put all the stories together and, and you get this big long line I guess you get the story becomes more fuller in your head of what's going on and it's fun. That's, mm. There's no really cool reason behind it. Just It's just interesting. So I don't know, just fun to unravel. You know, it's like a box that you open and you're like, oh, so this is what's inside. Mm. Mm. And that's that's it. Really, yeah, that, that, that's very interesting. Um, one thing one thing that makes me think of is, is sort of the disparate spirit experiences that I've had talking about Aurangzeb in India versus in Pakistan. Okay. Um, Obviously, very, very, I've had very radically different experiences. Um, you know, in, in India, I have many, many audience members are very engaged. They're very interested. Um, not a ton of people have a lot of historical knowledge, I have found. You know, obviously, if I speak at Aligarh Muslim University, they all know, you know, more than I know. But in, yeah. in, in sort of a more public venue, not, not huge depth of historical knowledge. And then, of course, in India, I mean, you know, you saw some of the reactions. The people yeah. who scream at me on stage and that sort of stuff. Whereas every time I've discussed Aurangzeb in Pakistan, um, you know, in, in Lahore, I get people, you know, who come who are, you know, they're just like everyday people with jobs and, you know, whatever, not academics. Um, right. And they know things that I didn't write about, right? Like they're working with sources and other words that are not just my book, right? They tend to come, come to my talks sort of having a wider array of information sort of in their minds, um, which is really cool. It makes for a better conversation. How is he seen in uh, Pakistan? Just better, I guess? Or is he seen as a Hindu, someone who hates Hindus also? Well, so I would, I would say that in Pakistan, there's sort of two mythical Aurangzebs. Okay. There is the Hindu hating fanatic sort of guy. And, and that, do, that does come up, um, you know, in, in various sort of modern literature and things like this. Um, but there's also this idea of sort of Aurangzeb, the one true Muslim Indian emperor, right? You know, because I mean, you know, Akbar was like way too into the Hindus and then Jahangir was like a drunk and an opium addict, right? Like there's all these guys that are like not good. Quote, right. Quote. Islamically speaking. Exactly. And then Aurangzeb comes along and oh my gosh, he actually knows the Quran and he like actually prays. Like, I don't know if he prayed five times a day. I mean, he's busy, but he like prays, you know, and he doesn't drink, you know, so he does these sort of outwardly Islamic things. Um, yeah. 
So you do end up with this sort of modern myth, most prominent in Pakistan, that he was the one truly pious Mughal king, right? And thus, and this gets wrapped into sort of Pakistani nationalism, right? Thus, he's sort of this guy we want to sort of look back on and revere. I puncture that myth as much as I puncture the, the, the sort of Aurangzeb, the fanatic myth in my scholarship. Yeah. Um, I will say, you know, I have had Pakistanis disagree with me on this point, um, but never with the degree of hate and vehemence that I've gotten from Hindu nationalists in India. So. Uh, I just, just, okay. That sucks for you. I'm sorry to hear that. That's all right. <laughs> you know, it is what it is. It is what it is. <laughs> I mean, controversy helps, you know, market the book. I've learned so that that's a good thing. That's a plus, I guess. That's true. I've probably sold more copies of the book. Um, I, I I think that the death threats and concerns of my safety have, have not been worth it. But oh, I did not know that. Sorry about that. That's all right. You get death threats. <laughs> not really? your fault. Yeah, I mean, not like every single day. Um, you know, and they, there have been waves of them. But yeah, I mean, you know, there there are police reports. There, you know, I've had to have armed security in multiple oh, no countries way. when I speak. I'm I mean, so sorry to hear that. Yeah, Death I think it's very unfortunate. Really? That's serious? Because you're not really saying anything in this book that's, like, crazy. You know, you're just saying... Yeah, you're not saying anything that's, like, I would say blasphemy in any way. So I don't see why you would get threat threats on just, you know... Yeah, I don't know. That's weird. So, I mean, in terms of explaining why... So, I mean, it's, it's from Hindu nationalists, right? Like, that, that's the sort of source. Um, I get vehement opposition from a few different groups. So as far as I know, the death threats have all come from Hindutva ideologues. And the, uh, one, there are many problems with Hindutva ideology. It's hateful. It's fascist, both in yeah. its origins and in its current incarnation. Um, it's also built on a house of cards regarding the past, right? Hindutva mythology about the past is extensive and it is sort of foundational to Hindutva thought, um, but it's also complete bullshit. And anyone can call it bullshit, uh, but not anyone can come along with extensive linguistic knowledge and a PhD and training and a lot of peer-reviewed scholarship and sort of calmly point out how they're wrong. And I do that, which makes me a huge threat. Um, So I, you know, I would go so far as to say the identification of historians like me who will not bow to political pressure, but rather will continue our scholarly work no matter what, we are a very serious threat to the Hindu right. I think that there's no doubt about that. Um, You know, I I think they should still decline, you know, sort of slow down on the death threat stuff. That's the more reason to read this book for everybody listening. You know, wow. Um, Thank you so much. This was great. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me on. I really oh, appreciate it. I'm I'm excited for your next book. Uh, the second it comes out on Canada, I'll I'll check it out. Fantastic. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye now. Bye bye.